see more innovation in packaging and processing at Pack Expo International than anywhere else in the world. It's the show that defines where the industry is headed, with the solutions that define where your business can go. Discover cutting-edge packaging technology, processing equipment, new materials, sustainable solutions, supply chain resources, and much, much more. You'll walk away with innovative solutions to challenges big and small. Register at PackExpoInternational.com. You're listening to Unpacked with PMMI, where we share the latest packaging and processing industry insights, research, and innovations to help you advance your business. Hi, I'm Sean Riley, and welcome to Unpacked with Packaging World and exploding packaging industry star and editor of Packaging World, Matt Reynolds. You have all read Matt's work in the pages of Packaging World and heard him a couple of times on this very podcast. But in the past year, Matt and the PMMI Media Group team have taken over the internet with videos that bring the written word to life. Every Friday, they drop a new Take 5 news segment that serves as a great takeaway for the week. It's five minutes well spent. Go check it out all over the interwebs. For today's pod, we helped Matt prepare for his national public radio debut on Kai Risedale's Marketplace Business News. Rather than getting into the weeds on trends around packaging at a granular level, Matt and I discuss how the two main forces of change in 2020, COVID-19 and social consciousness, produced a new consumer for 2021. I think you'll enjoy the discussion, and please be sure to check out Matt over on NPR. Matt Reynolds, welcome back to the podcast. Ah, thanks for having me. Pleasure is all mine, as it always is uh, to have a man of your stature. <laughs> all right, so basically, what do you want to talk about, Matt? We're always covering trends, and there's a lot of trends that are going on right now, and we're always covering them from the lens of you know very close to a specific application, one company, one brand, you know, one pack style. Um, but with all of the change that we've seen happening, um, you know, we kind of wanted to take a little more of a holistic view of what's going on and why we're seeing all these changes, whether it's you know sustainability or pack style or whatever the might whatever it might be. And it all seems to ratchet up to not really one single trend, but a year, and that's 2020. Uh, you know, obviously, you can't mention 2020 without saying COVID-19. Uh, that was, you know, the big 1A influencer on consumer behavior. And then 1B, uh, I think not far behind would have been, you know, social responsibility and, and societal values coming into the fore and how packaging as a reflection of society at large has to adapt to meet its consumer uh, where its consumer is. So those are two trends that are, it's not really a causal relationship. It just so happens they both landed in the calamitous year that was 2020 and kind of orbit each other and both had some effect in changing the behavior and the attitudes of the consumer. And we'll just kind of want to look at how the attitudes changed and how that affects brands upstream and then from brands to their suppliers and just the ripple effect that the year 2020 had on consumer packaged goods and food and beverage and packaging. It's an interesting summation and, and a great way to kind of position this. Um, and I, I appreciate the, uh, the well thought out answer. I don't know that I was expecting it to be uh, so clear and concise, but uh, very, very well done. So obviously, yeah, it would be a, it'd be a complete dereliction of my duty as a uh, 
respected podcaster in the industry to not talk about, you know, COVID. It's impossible not to. It's, you know, hopefully they'll get to a point where we're not talking about it. But unfortunately, it's a thing and it's been a thing for for over a year. And the biggest thing from our point of view and for our industry is it basically it blew up the supply chain. And anyone who went into a store could see that. You know, you went down the paper goods aisle and the toilet paper section was empty. So I guess to kind of touch on that for a bit, as we'll use that as kind of our, I don't know, our CPG example, like for the people out there listening, you know, why couldn't Kimberly Clark or whatever company that was, you know, in charge of making toilet paper crank out more TP? Like what was the big issue? Well, I think we'd gotten too good at producing products in the precise volume and timeliness uh, that, you know, basically we were doing everything just in time. Nobody was keeping any inventory of anything because inventory can be seen as, you know, waste. You want things moving through the system, not you know, waiting for use. And we got so good at it and we got so efficient. And by we, I just mean the supply chains in general, going all the way back up to, you know, forestry, right on down to Kimberly Clark. And then as seen by consumers in the retail uh, setting in the you know the toilet paper aisle, but I think going forward is that taught us a, a lesson that, and we're going to see more slack built into the system to be able to withstand these shocks and jolts uh, to the supply chain. I mean, that's that's I think the one A lesson that we see coming out of of COVID nineteen is just a preparedness that we may not have had before. Do you see that beyond borders? For example, is that a a reshoring of of sourcing of materials? Is that having warehouses? Yeah, it can be. I think it's it's certainly uh, the closing of the borders was a lesson to begin with. Um, you know, particularly China, which is such a massive supplier. India, secondarily. But I think just the reliance on single sources in a supply chain uh, is, I mean, that that's kind of been disrupted in the sense that you no longer want to have all your eggs in one basket as the, the sole supplier of fiber or the sole supplier of aluminum or whatever it might be coming from one specific region. That's a regional kind of uh, way of looking at it, but also from companies, you know, different companies that are multinationals, you're not going to be necessarily doing business with the only one single company based on, you know, what if their paper mill has an outbreak of whatever the pandemic du jour might be? Well, then, you know, does that shut you down? Or do you have an option B, option C? So it puts a lot more emphasis on SRM or supplier uh, relationship management, because if you want to be the one getting the packaging and materials you need, particularly in a scarcity environment, wouldn't it pay to have a better relationship with your suppliers than your competitors have? You know, would it pay for you to adopt a position where you aren't just beating up a key strategic supplier on price, but instead are actively engaged with those strategic suppliers and making a relationship aimed at both supplier and customer better and not all suppliers but certainly the ones that are you know the key strategic suppliers you know you instead of chipping away at price can you create a situation where you're both prepared for shocks to the system and you're both diversified in you know the supplier supplier and the supplier 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 so so i think those are all lessons learned from the shock the initial shock to the system and i think that it'll all be implemented going forward interesting so then again using our example of a the toilet paper, I went in the store, I couldn't get it. So naturally you go home and you try to find it online because now you're, you're picking from, you know, thousands of places. So clearly that had to have a, I would call it another shock to the supply chain or another shock to the system. How did that? It was out? a shock. I would call it uh, an earthquake to the landscape of the omnichannel. Uh, so the omnichannel, <laughs> think of it like 
the broadest way of thinking about it would be a three legged stool where you've got food service and educational and industrial. It would be one of the legs. So hospitality, food service, that sort of thing. Next would be retail, which we all know there was a run on retail. And then I think at least the temporary and probably long-term winner, if you can claim winner out of any of this mess, would be e-commerce and, and kind of the, the rate of adoption of e-commerce accelerated. You know, So where, pe- where we thought we would be in e-commerce in 2030, maybe we'll be in 2025 in terms of adoption rates, because people who, who just had been resistant to it for whatever reason, um, you know, not necessarily just that they're troglodytes, but maybe they just don't need it. They live in a neighborhood with a you know, with everything they need within walking distance. Well, when those retail environments either shut down, food service shut down, uh, retails runs on certain important personal care items. So yeah, you turn to Amazon, you turn to e-commerce. So they, that was definitely a learning or a teaching moment to teach people who hadn't adopted it already how to use it. But you know that had some negative ramifications, both in supply chain and also in their relationship to packaging. Considering a retail environment or a food service environment, you know there's a lot of packaging that's happening in the back room. That you know secondary packaging, shrink wrap, corrugated, you know 50 pound bags of Tyson chicken that go to your local chicken fryer shop, uh, food service that are kept kind of cloistered from the consumer. Well, with Omnichannel, a lot of that packaging ended up on people's doorstep. And uh, uh, what <laughs> what originally was, you know, a very strong sustainability movement prior to the pandemic only accelerated. It was an, a hockey stick type of aha moment. I just watched a commercial the other night. It was uh, of the world's strongest man breaking down your Amazon boxes. And it, basically, it brings into focus for consumers who had been happily, blissfully unaware just how much packaging is involved in the supply chain. So uh, I think it's it's a long trail of breadcrumbs to get there. But in a way, you know, COVID-19 has spurred sustainability in a way that, you know, it, it wouldn't have had that acceleration curve prior to the pandemic. And that's, there's two interesting things that are popping into my head off of that. And the first one is I, I'm, you're in Chicago, I'm uh, outside Philadelphia. And it's a thing I've noticed, and it's happened a bunch, because clearly where Philly is... In, in the Northeast corridor, it's so close to other major cities. They're literally building these humongous, massive Amazon warehouses everywhere that are basically goes counterproductive to all these years of, you know, warehouses closing down and stuff like that because they didn't want things holding it. But it's kind of the reverse model that we're used to of these big facilities holding all these goods so that people can pick them and get them to people faster in the mail versus 50 years ago, you go to your main street and you have all these stores that offer it, or you go into your big box retailer. It, it all ties in, but it's it's sort of playing out very strangely, I guess, the way I'm viewing it as it, it's sort of taking steps backwards, even though it's bringing stuff forward. And I know that doesn't make much sense. No, it does. It does. It's, it's what's old is new again. And, and when you had your main street general store, you didn't have much selection. You know, you might have uh, three different size sizes for whatever it might be, your tennis racket grip handle, you know, something mm-hmm. is, is uh, now I can get down to the, you know, eighth of an inch in, of grip handle for the tennis racket and, and the, the weight and the length of the racket that's basically tailored to exactly what I want and need. And not only is that available to me, you know, basically overnight, but you no, know, I'm in Chicago, in Indiana on one side of the border and in Wisconsin on the other side of the border, there are these massive facilities that are probably carrying inventory of that particular tennis rack. And that's another example of, you know, building Slack into a system that had been finely tuned, uh, well-running machine 
so that you know supply was ramped up right before the holidays and then would dip down at the, precisely the right moment after the you know the new year. Well, when you have these shock to the system, then you know maybe some inventory is necessary, some some slack, some buffer, and that's what we'll see going forward. I suspect. Yeah, interesting. And 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 not to leave the sustainability idea because I followed a lot of the. Um, you know, stories you've written in packaging world and also watch some of your great uh, take five videos that are online uh, that people should be checking out where this idea and it was at least how I would have looked at it as well is that the idea of everybody getting everything delivered to their homes or everybody using single use bottles of water because, you know, all the water fountains are closed down because you can't have, you know, people sharing water fountains during a pandemic, um, all the trash from the hand sanitizer, stuff like that. To me, that would say, okay, sustainability is taking a back seat, but you've already touched on it. And I guess you can go a little bit further. That isn't necessarily 100% the case. It, it, it's sustainability is kind of. Yeah, sustainability rocks, is you know? there's, there's no question about it. And, and there was a certain, I think it was a temporary, I guess reversion is the wrong word, but uh, people did suddenly see the value of that water bottle or hand sanitizer that nobody else has touched and is, is their own and they can dispose of and, and you don't have 10 people touching it along the way. But I think for the wider trends are, are that sustainability really has gotten a shot in the arm from, from COVID-19. And uh, because of that, people are looking at, and, and this is rightly or wrongly, this is just the trend, the perception there is that plastics are kind of the villain in this scenario. And we see brands reacting to that in, you know, two ways, one of which is moving away from plastics completely. uh, And some brands can get away with it by moving to say aluminum. Now this is going to be reserved for really high margin brands. Aluminum is just more expensive. And there is an argument that could be made that it uses more CO2 to actually produce the aluminum, but then there's so much aluminum that is already within the circular um, recycling chain that, you know, a lot of that aluminum that's being uh, formed into, say, an aluminum can is already has been recycled two to three times, a certain percentage of it has at least. So I don't know what the algorithm is. Actually, it would, a Nobel Peace Prize to the person who could write the al- algorithm for what is the appropriate or most sustainable pack design in the application. Maybe we'll see that uh, in our lifetimes. But in the meantime, it seems to be a quagmire of you know competing claims and and I think undue vilification of plastics in the sense that you know consumers deal with that at the very end of their single plastic product packaging journey. They've protected whatever's inside that package for, you know, all the way up the supply chain to get that to consumers freshly and, you know, uh, safely and lightweight and with the possibility to uh, 90, I don't know, 90% is just my term that I'm throwing out. It's not a precise term, but so much of what's used in plastic packaging right now is recyclable. And we just don't have the A, consumer knowledge or willingness, understanding how to recycle. And it's so fractured out there is B, it is fractured. It's there's no two municipalities that act identically. And, you know, if what's happening in California is different than what's happening in Missouri. And there's no national attitude towards that. And I think that's changing. I think the Consumer Brands Association recently came out with a more singular or aligned methodology to address uh, recycling plastics. And I think that's it's really great. I think PMMI is on board with this as well. And I know it's, it's a bipartisan thing, you know, whether you look at plastics as a, uh, a feedstock that is just another input material in a circular style economy that is it's a commodity that can be bought and sold and is a valuable moneymaker and, and an engine for the economy. Well, you want to achieve 
circular plastics economy, or whether you want to keep the straws out of the pelicans' noses in the ocean, whatever it might be, then you want a circular plastics economy. So it's remarkable. And and, and I'm forgetting the acronym now, um, but there is definitely a, a new refresh and uh, interesting push uh, towards recycling that I think we'll see, uh, hopefully on a federal level, as opposed to municipality by municipality, to really create some infrastructure. Are you looking for better efficiency with your product conveyance? Spantech's custom conveyor solutions can get your products exactly where they need to be at the exact moment they need to be there. Minimize your downtime and maximize your ROI with customized conveyor solutions from Spantech. Visit SpantechConveyors.com for more information. One last note is that we're doing a lot of good work towards a circular plastics economy, but there's a potential silver bullet out there, chemical recycling. And it's it's not there yet, subject to Moore's law, like a lot of things where, you know, it, it's expensive and hard to do at this point. But, you know, as the infrastructure rolls out, and this is basically taking plastics or any material, not just plastics, but plastics is, you know, the name of the game here in packaging, uh, down to like the, its smallest or, or most singular molecular level so that you can take a, even a multi-layer structure, HDPE with an EBOH, barrier, whatever it might be, and break those plastics down to, you know, their single units and build them back up to whatever they need to be and then recycle them again. And and again, that's not limited to plastics, but with all the work we're doing towards a circular economy, there is this other looming technology that could solve a whole lot of problems. Yeah. And it's trust in the science. (laughs) It just seems like that's a motto that we could have used for the last, you know, 16 months or whatever, that sometimes you just have to trust the science and it might cost a little bit of money at first, but in the long run, it's going to really pay off. So I guess let's pivot then to, you know, your trend too, which, you know, social justice and social responsibility they were all over the mainstream news and rightfully so since you know in my opinion it's it's long overdue and we saw protests around the country for you know weeks at a time and brands kind of had to come home and, and face the music in a lot of cases we've seen you know the Washington NFL team had to literally change a name that they had for 80 years that it didn't happen you know yesterday where people thought it was offensive and it just kept you know going on and on and on so i guess for our industry how did packaging and brands respond to this call for societal justice and social responsibility? I should use the caveat here that this isn't just like my anecdotal or your anecdotal evidence um, on how brands responded. There's a great take five uh, up up right now that Kim Overstreet did, and she kind of uh, collected or curated content from the Consumer Brands Association from mm-hmm. ISTA, which is the International Safe Transit Association. They do a lot with ECOM. Um, Smithers, Smithers Pyra, and they had a sustainability conference that Kim attended. And then kind of, she just amalgamated all of these different trends and predictions that came from these brands associations that are very close to the consumer. And ultimately, I think 44% of people, uh, according to, this is an ISTA conference, 44% of people are going to buy from brands that actually align with their values. I think this is of a piece with sustainability because I think sustainability and environmental responsibility is, you know, a big picture value is a social justice issue, but it's also uh, more justice and, and, and gender equality and inclusion side of the coin as well. So both of those are kind of, they're of a piece. So consumers are telling brands with their wallets that they want the brands to have a stance, to say something, to have an opinion, and to vocalize that opinion in a way that lets them know where they stand. And brands are, you know, they can't stand idly by in the corner and sell to both sides of the aisle, apparently, as easily. But, 
you know, this started with, you, you mentioned the, the Washington Redskins. I had the same experience 15 years ago with the fighting Illini in Illinois. But it's the, the racially charged imagery that brands, as is their right, as, you know, private brands, they're getting rid of these mascots in favor of, of more inclusive type of brand stance, um, for lack of a better word. But that's not always a negative thing. It's not always a reductionist thing or reduce or, or get rid of uh, certain stances. I mean, we just covered a great story from Hershey, which kind of benefited from the happy accident of their name of Hershey. They ran with a campaign. It's, it's actually was Hershey Brazil specifically, but March 8th is uh, International Women's Day. And they ran with a month-long campaign featuring art, music, science, packages that are designed to celebrate art, music, and science from, from women. And that's no easy undertaking considering, you know, Hershey's got an iconic logo that's existed for a hundred years and they're doing packages in the millions. You know, the volume is ridiculous. So, you know, taking one small sample of one month's worth of runs. And if, if, if you look at our story on it online, you'll see this isn't just one shift from one pack to another. There, there are probably dozens of different artists that were brought in to redesign the package for Hershey and have these specific one-off style packages. But, you know, that's done via digital printing, digital printing to the rescue, because they're able to, instead of having to create a new mold and a die for each and every pack, suddenly you have the capability to shift on a dime, run a different pack design or a multitude of different pack designs for one month only, and then right back to your traditional, you know, classic Hershey bar. Um, and that's kind of packaging as a reflector or as a billboard or as the, the messenger for a company or a brand's social justice campaigns. But just this week, I've came across a Unilever project that really is exciting to me. And I'm, I'm following up with the folks at Unilever right now, hopefully a story, you know, this week or next, but they are launching, uh, it's their brand Degree, which is a antiperspirant deodorant, um, but they've got a degree inclusion pack. So this is aimed at folks with uh, disabilities of the upper arms, upper limbs, where it's difficult to uh, remove the cap and apply deodorant. They might not have the reach capability to go you know, across their torso. This is a really wide group of people. And of course, it's not limited to one race, gender, sex, or creed. Cross, it's a cross-section of society as a whole that's affected by this. And I think it's, it's exacerbated by the Special Olympics we're seeing this. But the new pack is designed to have a magnetic opening device. So it's a pressure or amount of force that's used to open the pack. It also has an integral handle that's instead of having to wrap your fingers around something to hold it, it has a, an actual channel in the bottom of the pack that allows multiple different styles of hand or, or um, device to be able to pick that up and hold it. It also has integral, like in mold, I, I, I don't have the details on this pack yet, but I'm pretty sure it's a, it's a molded structure. There's a hook on the top. So let's say for a blind person, it can be hanging in the same place in a shower or in a bathroom, you know, and it's easy to find it because it's hanging up. And then all it, all that's required is pressure coming down to remove the magnetic closure, and then it can be applied. So it's really interesting. Now, a pack like that with all those bells and whistles is going to be expensive. But the idea here is that it becomes a robust package that has refills that's sent to it. So suddenly what started off like as a, let's say a 15, 20, $12, whatever it might be, but then the refills thereafter and much less expensive. And then this pack can exist for longer. So this social justice minded package design is actually sustainable too. So you see again, both sides of the same coin. And brands like Hershey, they're not just doing this as a you know virtual signaling or paying lip service to a certain cause. Uh, they chose the Hershey movement partially because 52% of the leadership at Hershey is female and that stems right up to Michelle Buck, who's the CEO. So we can't look at this completely cynically as a play for consumer dollars. These are things that brands actually do stand for. 
Very interesting. So we have gone all over the place in terms of the last year. I think we've had a bunch of, of issues. I guess to kind of put a button on it, what's next? How do we get from there to the next step? Like what is going to yeah, happen? Good question. <laughs> well, um, I would say that the two examples I just gave are Hershey and Unilever. And those are brands or brand owners with the most resources, with the most, with the deepest pockets and probably entire divisions on R&D. Meanwhile, for most uh, other brands, or I would say for the vast majority of food and personal care CPG product brands, they've been struggling just to keep up, just to make sure product needs are, are met. SKUs, which had been, obviously, we know the trend of SKU proliferation. Uh, they'd actually squeeze the number of SKUs at a lot of these brands to concentrate on the highest volume items that they can just keep churning through nonstop. So we actually saw a contraction in the number of SKUs in the industry over the last 16 months or so uh, that kind of coincided with the homespun feeling of, you know, looking for wholesome and nostalgic foods. You can imagine Campbell's tomato soup probably had a good few quarters there. But what, what I mean to say is that there's been certain amount of pent up innovation. These brands haven't been blind to what's going on, either on sustainability or social responsibility trends that the consumers are asking them to address. They just haven't had the capacity on their lines to be doing a whole lot of R&D and, and testing new products and, and spinning off new SKUs that might hit a new, you know, a new market or hit, you know, well with a certain group of consumers. But I think we're normalizing. I think this, what what I mentioned before, kind of this earthquake to the landscape of the omnichannel is kind of recalibrating in a way that might be somewhat permanent, um, at least in the near term. And and based on that, you'll see brands that are gradually uh, seeing uh, capacity come back. And with that capacity, ability to start experimenting with new pack designs, new ways to express who they are in terms of what they stand for and the values they believe that'll resonate with their customers or their consumers. And the other factor is we haven't had a chance to have in-person events to to really connect the dots of what might be available out there. Again, 16 months, we've, we've, we've also seen that people haven't been able to get together and exchange ideas as easily as they have in the, in the past, just because the big packaging shows like Interpack, Pack Expo Chicago, um, those are the big ones just haven't been able to happen for obvious reasons because of COVID-19, because of borders being closed. Um, so the free exchange of ideas, well, we've done our best via Zoom, you know, the best collaboration have, tends to happen in person and in areas where you can, you know, get your hands on a machine or, you know, use AR, VR to virtually get your hands on a machine at least. But still, what we're feeling is pent up innovation. So we, we have these uh, kind of thought leaders or early adopters in Unilever and Hershey that are showing what's possible and what might be around the next bend. But we also have a lot of pent up innovation and in, in brands that are, are just waiting for an opportunity to make the next shift uh, because they have been running like gangbusters for 16 months. And as they, as, as they gain more capacity, then they'll be able to turn their attention to what they want to look like next, what the next version of that brand is going to be. And I think the the first event that we're all going to be at is going to be Pack Expo Las Vegas. I know I'll be there, Sean, and you'll be there. But so that I look forward to that as the first time I'll be able to see a lot of these trends that we've been following and been hearing about, but you know, in the flesh and actually in some sort of application going forward. 
Yeah, it's a it's not a good industry. Again, we've tried. You try with video, you try with online, but if you need to experience technology in action, like you need to see it working, you need to see it producing before you're going to be willing to invest, you know, thousands if not millions of dollars into it. You need to see different versions of packages and feel how they're going to feel when a customer is buying them versus just seeing a picture of it. And it's it's another thing that I think people started taking for granted with ideas like trade shows where that is a huge aspect of it, that actual tactile interaction between uh, a person and the product or the machinery that they're yeah, going to be working on. I, I agree. On. It's, it's, there's an emotional and interpersonal element there that, that I'm sorry, Zoom just can't, can't connect the way uh, that we can in person. That's all right. Zoom seems <laughs> to be doing perfectly fine. And I think that they're, they've made <laughs> plenty of money this year. So I guess on that note, thank you again, Matt. We put a great podcast together for people to listen to that that really gives everyone kind of a a 30,000 foot view, but then we got in there real deep on some some real issues and real things that are happening out there. So I wanna thank you for taking all this time to come on here and talk with us. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks, Sean. Please rate, review, and subscribe. To do that, go to the iTunes podcast or Spotify app on your phone and search for Unpacked with PMMI.